Do you feel safe where you park your car? We ask because nurses at HSE have filed a grievance over parkade safety. The push for salary transparency. A growing number of provinces now require companies to list salaries when posting a job. Would you like to know that information ahead of time? The Western Hockey League is making neck guards mandatory as of Friday. What say you on this? And inspired by the fact that Winnipeg's own Brady Oliveira of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is awesome, nominated for most outstanding player in the CFL, what would be in your Manitoba brag book? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, November 2nd podcast for The Start. On Friday, clearing in the morning, hoping to reach a high of 1 in the afternoon. And for Saturday, still fighting for seasonal temperatures with cloudy conditions and a high of 0. You know what? <laughs> I did it again. Our weather monitor in our studio is still not working. And of course, I waited until the very last second to look up at the screen. So now I am doing what we call ragging the puck as I open our Environment Canada app and it's just not opening. So you know what? I don't know. Minus one. It's minus, minus one. one. At Thank any you very point much. In that we could have helped you out. And I just sat here like watching you. My There it is. I could have given you the, the rope. I, I had it open too. And nah, I just, I just was, watched. Didn't want to interrupt. Oh, good job. Thanks. All. Thanks all. It is minus one outside. Six eighty. Terrible teamwork there. Just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Weather is for Steinbeck Auto Dealers. It's worth the trip to Steinbeck where you can expect honesty, transparency, and a great price. Steinbeck Auto Dealers, online at itsworththetrip.com. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. So as our weather monitor is now into day three of its strike, uh, we, 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 we look to another strike that has at long last come to an end. I don't suppose there's too much surprise out there that after rejecting that offer just 48 hours ago and then a new offer hitting the table a much improved offer I would say from MPI to its 1700 striker worker, striking workers that the strike is off Greg and uh, the deal was 13% essentially over four so two retroactively going back two years and then oh, now we have another deal for two more years and then they'll be back at the table but the strike is off the second longest strike in MGEU's history and uh, a real pain for many Manitobans out there who struggled over the past 10 weeks. T- licensing. Claims. Repairs. Repairs. All the Ale claims from August. Oh, my goodness. All the things that went along with it. But, you know, I've lamented the uh, political interference in hydro and MPI in particular when the Stephenson government when the Palster government were involved, when the Selinger government was in power and already I kind of feel like the like the the government has stepped in here and been involved. I like the idea. I prefer the notion of crown corporations being separate from government. I, I know every time I say that to you, Loren, you say, well, you know, that's probably not the case. Well, here's the, here's the thing. <laughs> Matt Weeb, who is the minister responsible for the corporation, we just heard it in Sarah's News, says the wage, wage hikes don't set a precedent for other public sector contracts. I'm just going to play this quick. 
You know, I think this is a, a a specific deal with MPI that I think is was job number one for us, and we wanted to get this done. Uh, we're happy that we're moving on from it, but I don't think that that necessarily means anything is is determined in terms of future deals with uh, other uh, in other circumstances. Matt Weeb, uh, you're fooling yourself. Good luck if you're a, <laughs> a Crown Corporation worker out there. If you're a public sector worker, and we know that there's threats to potentially strike there, you're, are you listening to this and thinking, no, sorry, if the line in the sand was that MLAs have had a three-plus percent increase over the next three years, and now we've seen MPI workers get that, and you know, depending on how you look at the numbers, liquor lot- and lotteries workers did well as well, are, do you not at least have a number where you say, I want to get pretty darn close to that or better? Yeah, that'd be my new, that would be my new minimum. I don't know about anybody else, McGarry. Sure. Right? Well, <laughs> you look around, right? I want to be making it. I want the increase. If you can use the MLA's increase as your Leverage. minimum yeah. and your point of reference, then guess what? This new contract for MPI workers, that's the new standard. What do you think at 204-780-6868? Feel free to weigh in on that and... In the meantime, we also want to discuss how a homegrown Winnipeg Blue Bomber is one step closer to doing something which has happened only four times in the past 70, 70 years. Yesterday, the CFL unveiled its individual finalists in voting, conducted by the football reporters of Canada and nine head coaches. League-rushing leader Blue Bomber Brady Oliveira and record-setting quarterback Chad Kelly of the Toronto Argonauts are the finalists for the CFL's Outstanding Player Award. So Oliveira is also the West rep for the top Canadian in the league, and every comment I saw on social media over the last 24 hours is like, just give it to him now, basically. Only twice since 1978 has a Canadian-born player been awarded the CFL's Mop? Do we say mop? Most outstanding player? You can Mopa? Say mop. Mopa? You can say the Mopa, mop. the most outstanding player award. And in fact, only three Canadians have won that award since it was first handed out in 53. So you have to go uh, running back John Cornish, won the award in 2013, receiver Tony Gabriel back in 78. And you got to go back to the 60s. Quarterback Russ Jackson, Greg was most outstanding player twice in 63 and 66. So Oliveira led the CFL in rushing with 1,534 yards, nine touchdowns, and the 26-year-old also had 38 catches for 482 yards and another four touchdowns for a combined 2,106 combined yards for the hometown Blue Bombers. And now I want to play this for you because in the moments following the Blue Bombers' heartbreaking 24-23 loss in the Grey Cup last year in Regina, Brady was one of just a handful of players willing to speak in the dressing room. And I have to tell you, his words feel extremely prophetic this morning. I knew today I had to stay true to who I, who I was as, as a player. And that's, you know, get north and south, be physical all game, make them not want to tackle you. And, you know, I think we did a good job doing that. You know, like I said, they just made one more play than us. We, we came out short. It is what it is. This, this one really, really stings, really hurts, but... This is fuel for the offseason. Add this fuel to the fire, and we're going to have a majority of the guys back. And uh, we know what we're capable of, and we'll be in another great cup. Still work to be done, of course. Next challenge, the West Final, one week from Saturday at IG Field. And uh, the Blue Bombers' opponent will be determined Saturday night. But uh, Brady Oliveira, so emotional following that uh, loss in Regina against Toronto in the Grey Cup last year. (laughs) 
It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. In our next segment, we will tie in Brady Oliveira and just the fact that he is awesome to a chance for you to win April wine tickets. They're coming to Winnipeg in April at the Burt. By the way, pre-sale is on now. The code word is CJOB. And our next Country Fest code word is coming up at 720. But right now we want to talk about the Western Hockey League. And they announced yesterday that neck guard protection is to be worn by all players following the death of former NHL player Adam Johnson. The former NHL player suffered a fatal slash to the neck during the second period of a game in England over the weekend. Yeah, all Western Hockey League players will be required to wear neck protection during all on-ice activities, including WHL games and practices. In an email release, the league said it anticipates delays in delivery due to a spike in demand for the physical equipment after Johnson's passing. The guards will be required as of Friday or as soon as clubs can get their hands on the equipment. The NHL has not yet confirmed if they will follow suit, but several calls were made to the league earlier in the week asking that it put rules in place regarding that piece of equipment. Lorraine. So the WHL is the newest league to add its players to the list of those who will be wearing those neck guards. This is already a rule in the OHL. That's the Ontario Hockey League and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. They require all their players to wear neck guards. Here in Manitoba, it's mandatory for anyone under 18 to wear that neck guard on the ice. So that's consistent, I think, right across the country for minor hockey players under Hockey Canada. But in junior and senior leagues in this province, neck guards are only recommended not required. We're seeing a shift here, but we were lamenting this morning that it takes a death like this, a tragic death of a young man like Adam Johnson, 29 years old, to get us here. And we put them on our kids when they're little, when they step on the ice. We put the visors, the the cages, the neck guards, all these things, because you're thinking they're little. They could trip, they could hurt one another, all that kind of stuff. And then when they get to the hardest hitting, fastest point of their game, we decide we we're taking them off. That's never made any sense to me. So I, I don't even know if I can say I'm pleased to see the WHL is doing this and hoping that other leagues follow suit when it seems like a no-brainer a long time ago. So here's, here's a couple of thoughts uh, on this uh, from my point of view. Uh, ironically here, I'm reading PittsburghHockeyNow.com, Dan Kingersky, and uh, the headline is Penguins to Mandate Net Guards for WBS and Wheeling Players. The Pittsburgh Penguins are mandating neck guards for their players with the Wilkesbury Scranton Penguins of the AHL right. and the Wheeling Dealers of the ECHL. But not following. the NHL. Correct. Because they skate a little slower there or they don't ever fall? I don't like what's the What's the rationale? I'm not sure. We've seen uh, cut arms in the past. Like, was it uh, Evander Kane that had the, the cut arm? And so there was a move to maybe wear some uh, protective gear yep. on, on, on the wrists. You know, when I played hockey, the hockey gloves sort of went up mid, mid arm, mid forearm. And now the gloves that even that I have for playing now barely go above the wrist they don't players don't lace them up at all they're all open uh there's a huge gap you know between the the top of the glove and the and the bottom of the elbow pad uh, players continually looking for an advantage in terms of their speed their agility their ability to handle the puck to skate 
And this leads to players removing pieces of equipment sometimes. And so I have to imagine that's part of the resistance to going to these neck guards all the time. You can put ankle guards, guys get hit in the ankles by pucks all the time. Some guys, nah, I'll take my chances. So many things. And then Brett, my last point would be, you know, if you're watching the Jets tonight and the warm up against Vegas, there are a couple of players that insist on warming up without a helmet. How are you ever on the ice without your helmet on? I, <laughs> I, I've never actually worn full hockey equipment, but I do remember wearing a helmet and I definitely had a visor on mm-hmm. and I needed it because I was clumsy and just the, I don't think I ever fell on my face. But having that visor, that full cage, uh, while I th- I think at first I thought, ah, I can't see out of this, but I definitely felt way safer. You get used to those things. Like you adjust. And just the way we changed helmet rules over the years, this neck guard thing will be the next thing. I just want to play this section from Global BC story that I was listening to this morning because all these different teams are having these discussions now. And so there is a junior hockey team in on Vancouver Island that's also making changes to the neck guard rule. And reporter Janet Brown spoke to some of the players and the coach of the Saanich Predators, Ryan Gimmel. It's definitely evolving and changing to make games safer. You know, we're making big strides in uh, preventing concussions. We're making big strides in preventing skate cuts. I would think it should be mandated in our league. Um, I think that the sport is, is hockey's played at a high, high speed. Uh, the skates are sharp. This is a net guard. It costs $30. However, many hockey players I've talked to say they don't like wearing it because number one, it's uncomfortable. And secondly, they say it doesn't look good. It's not cool. If the neck guard's a part of the equipment moving forward, I said, and everyone's wearing it, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't really, you know, there shouldn't be any judgment on that. I know there's a school of thought out there that the players in any sport know the risks and they can best manage the risk themselves. There's a difference between, you know, choosing to wear those ankle guards you were talking about, Greg, and protecting the bone and not having, you know, a break or an injury versus death. Like, is there not like this is just to me when a, when a when you're playing a sport with a knife on the bottom of a shoe? That's what it is. Then I think we can all agree the neck guard makes sense. And if you're thinking that the neck guard is cumbersome and not cool, like the one you might have had when you were 15, if you're like me, my ne- my neck guard I still play with is thick and old, and it is kind of annoying to wear, but I wear it. The, now? the, the one the kids have now, it barely feels like there's there's anything hard in there. The technology has changed so much. There is a story out of uh, Long Island that I just stumbled upon this morning from back from May in 2017 about a 15-year-old who just, you know, there was a, a couple of the players sort of tripped over each other and fell and he took a skate to the neck and he credits his neck guard as saving his life because he did cut. He had a pretty serious cut on his neck, but the cut would have been significantly worse had the Kevlar in his neck guard not stopped that skate. From doing it, so he says he'd be dead if not for that. And uh, what does uh, Haley Wickenizer have to say about it? Well, she's the four-time Olympic gold medalist, and you know, with that idea of it not being cool, she said, "Listen, I know it may not pass the cool factor, but it's time for mandatory neck protection at every level in hockey. The risk is far too great not to." She posted that on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, and, and Wickenizer is now in the NHL world too with the. Leafs, is she not? Yes. So she's at a, at a level where maybe there'll be some influence there as well. We'll see. Let us know what you think. 
Mackling, McGarry, McNabb. Right now, we want to discuss your Manitoba, your hometown brag book. That's right. An exciting announcement, as you've been hearing in sports. We took it uh, off the top here. An exciting announcement for Winnipeg-born, Winnipeg-raised, Winnipeg football player as Brady Oliveira was selected as the West Division nominee for Most Outstanding Canadian Player of 2023 and the Most Outstanding Player, no matter your birth certificate. I never would have thought that this would have happened, you know, obviously growing up in the city here and watching superstars, Milt Stiegel and Charles Roberts, guys that, you know, have, have had a successful career in this league. And I knew that there was a, there would come a time where I could maybe pursue this passion and, and be in the footsteps that they have, have been in. And I just never really thought it would be like this. So I, I never thought I would be getting these nominations so early in my career, I think eventually, you know, I thought I, I know I can be an elite player and, and be at the top of my game in this league and be one of the top players in this league. I just didn't think it would come so early in my career. Yeah, this Winnipeg boy is hungry, man, hungry for more, and the job's not done yet, and I'm really excited and looking forward to this postseason. So that leads us into our conversation this morning. What is your What is your Manitoba proud thing, person, place, food? You name it. There's lots of places to go with this, Brett. 204-780-6868. Cameron Poitras, let's start with you, sir. Well, I got to go with food. Uh, France has the baguette. Manitoba has Winnipeg rye, baby. I've been recently Yum. going right to the manufacturer. Uh, isn't that mi- million in Gimli? Oh, wait. You're talking bread. <laughs> <laughs> Not the drink. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what, I don't rye understand. Crown Royal. Crown Royal. Rye whiskey. Oh. Rye whiskey. Oh, no, I'm talking about bread. <laughs> okay. Just want to make sure. <laughs> now you got me all in a, in a loop-de-loop here. Um, so, where, so where do you go? What's the, where do you go to get the bread? Oh no, I go right to the I go right to the the place that's made now. I don't even I don't even screw around. You get a better price, and I well I go back and forth between city and natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it just depends on how I feel, um, and uh, so I, I I went to the natural bakery <laughs> on Logan. A, Last week, I think it was on Friday, and I went and picked up a couple loaves, and I think I ate half of it on the way <laughs> home. With just, nothing on it? Just straight, Thanks. and it was oh, it. absolutely delicious. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a half. It was at least a third. <laughs> I didn't know you could just walk in there and do that. Like those oh, are yeah. those are both my favorite breads. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you can just walk right in and it's fresh and it's just absolutely delicious. Good idea. That's a good idea, Cam. Sarah, what about you? I was also I am also still very loyal to natural bread, so love it. And uh, just being the only transplant here um, mm-hmm. from Ontario, when I came when I would come out here visiting the city, I would always get honey dill sauce mm. with my chicken fingers. And now. I can have as much as I want, whenever I want. That tub, I think it's blue, white cap, and so good. So, so good. So easy to make. Ontario, mm-hmm. they have plum sauce. Yeah, that's Which not. is horrendous, <laughs> embarrassing <laughs> that they even serve that. I know. Come on. Sorry. You yes. offer me plum <laughs> sauce with my chicken fingers? When that happens, you want to say, what else? Like, what else do you have? No. Another Keep going option. down the list of condiments in your fridge because <laughs> plums? Who even likes plums? Let alone plum sauce. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, for the defenders of the plum in the audience, feel free to weigh in on that. Jeff Forte, what about you? Oh, what's that? (laughs) 
Is that the Sasquatch? Polar bear? No, it's a polar bear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on. We, we got polar bears here. Like, I've never seen one out in nature. Like you see them at uh, the zoo. But, you know, proud to have polar bears, which means we have a cold, cold climate, which I, I think that we take quite pride in because whenever someone's like, oh, Winnipeg is so cold or Manitoba is so cold, we're like, yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. We deal with it. We're they, tough. Yeah. They had a polar bear on Lost as well. Was that, was that oh, Manitoba? No. I, I can tell was you. the I've polar never bear lost? lost? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ended up there. Lost its way. <laughs> uh, what about you, Mackling? Oh, gosh. There are just so many things uh, that you could say. I guess for me, when I bring people here, when people come home to visit that have moved away or have never been here before, I just, I just love how quickly you can be in like three or four different ecologies, different environments. You know, you go to the East, you get in t- two hours, you're in Kenora and less than that, you're in the white shell. You go up to the East side and the West side of Lake Winnipeg, the great inland sea, a little bit bothered by the condition of the water, the algae and everything. I'll put that aside for now, but just the different places that you can go. And then Loren, I don't want to steal yours. You're gonna. Yeah, yeah. Also, I'll just, I'll just press pause. It's okay. I wasn't I'll gonna say pause. that anyway. You weren't? I'm trying to be different. Not just oh, go with my three mean? answers like Modern Family, The Office, and Clear Lake. And, and Clear Lake, well, <laughs> and in Clear Lake. I mean, it just you know, in four or five hours of driving, you can just see so much. Nope, it's not the Rocky Mountains, but you know what? Not everywhere has the Rocky Mountains. There's only a couple places you can see those, by and, the way, and, and, and only the right side of. Clear Lake. You don't go to the other side. Don't go to the west side. Don't go Just to the like west the stadium. Side. Yeah. Stick to the west side sucks. West theory. side sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Stay to the east side. <laughs> All right. Well, what you said you were going to be different, Loren. Okay. So there's a couple things like I just this was it Halloween night. You're lamenting how cold it is for the kids and then weirdly bragging to the rest of your family not here like, oh, we're out trick or treating for hours. It's minus 17. So there's something about bragging about the cold, even when you hate it. And so that, I think, is interesting. Every curler this province has ever produced, you know, you can watch. You can put that any curling game on and it's going to feature somebody with connections to Manitoba. If they're not direct, it's indirect. Oh, especially the women's game right now. The curling is so brag worthy. Just thinking of what's been going on with Carrie Anderson, like amazing. And then I don't like these, but when people have them when they're not from here, I'll be like, you know, pizza pops were made in Manitoba. (laughs) That's never something I ever want, ever. I never say, oh God, cook me up a pizza pop. But when people... Buy them or have them? I feel the need to brag about that. You're probably not a fan of garbage bags and what's inside garbage bags either, but the uh, black trash bag was invented in Manitoba as well. And the garbage really? mitt. Yeah. Garbage mitts, the Gerber mitts. Oh, Absolutely. Garbage. Winnie the Pooh? Mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh. The, the Winnipeg idea. the Pooh. The idea of uh, James Bond was also from here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Stevenson? Is that William, William Stevenson? Stevenson? Yeah. yeah. That's right. So what we need from you at 204-780-6868 What's in your Manitoba brag book? Whether it's a person, whether it's a place, a thing. What's yours? I just like I I would have said just how tough we are, but it kind of tied in with what you were saying about bragging about the cold. You know, Chris Jericho, who of course also spent much of his time growing up in Winnipeg. He uh, often because he when you look at his career longevity in wrestling, he points to the fact that he grew up in Winnipeg, and you you have to be tough. To endure what we go through every year. Isn't and that funny? We say friendly Manitoba and we're the friendliest, but we're also the toughest. That's kind of an interesting conflation. 
I don't even friendly. know if that's a word. We're friendly, but if you get on our bad side, you'll find out how just how tough we are. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It's Thursday, which means after 7.30, it's our small town salute. Greg, we're talking some ice fishing. Yeah, the hard water. Uh, I, I was hearing that, I think, in your voice, Brett McGarry, yeah. on 680 CJOB over the last couple of weeks. And I go, never thought of it, never heard of it referenced as the, getting out on the hard water to do ice fishing. So we'll find out about that saying. We'll find out about ice fishing and how long do we have to wait before we can get out and start catching fish in the middle of the lake that you kind of got there either by snowmobile walking or or other sort of vehicle. It's kind of a magical experience. There's a Manitoba thing that's sort of second to none. There you go. So we'll talk ice fishing for our small town salute. Country Fest code word coming up at 720. And a bit later on this morning, Cam Poitras has the keys to the game just after 810 because the Jets back in action tonight. In the meantime, with so many Canadians struggling to make ends meet, new research is showing a growing number of us want prospective employers to be more transparent about what they're planning to pay before they bring you into a job interview. So HR and recruiting firm Robert Half says results from a recent survey show 50 close to 50%, 48% of Canadian workers are frustrated with the fact that depending on where they live, salary information is not always disclosed before you go into that interview. And another 62% say they would take themselves out of the running if an employer declined that info on request. I mean, you've perhaps been there before. You're in the interview and they say, you ask, what does it pay? And they say, we're working on that or we'll get back to you. And, and that's frustrating. So there are different rules for different companies. If you're federally regulated, it might be different. It depends on where you live in terms of provinces, on how pay transparency works. But Michael French of Robert Half joins us now and is going to walk us through some of the protocols. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, before we get into what employees and employers are thinking, what, what are the rules here in Manitoba? What's on the books when it comes to whether or not I'm allowed to talk about salary with coworkers, whether I'm allowed to ask about a salary, or whether that salary has to be posted in a, in a job posting. So salary transparency is fairly new. It's not something that was talked about sort of four or five years before COVID. I didn't hear much about it. It has become a very hot topic south of the border in many states. Um, recently, British Columbia has come out with legislation, and that is the only province now that actually has legislation around salary transparency. But it is, I would say it's coming to the rest of Canada very soon. But we're seeing more and more companies embracing some of these HR best practices, and salary transparency is one of them. I think I remember a time in this market, Michael, where prices attached to house listings were very uncommon. I don't know if it was realtors trying to, you know, keep uh, the, uh, the the lookers away. And if if you were serious about a property, you would call. But then it, it, it changed I don't know. I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, now it's it's automatic. So talk about why why this is something that employers are so hesitant to do. Well, there's a number of things going on in the in the market. And so one of the things that's really impacting has been inflation. You know, things cost much more today than before COVID or 4 or 5 years ago. And now we're seeing a real challenge of people and their job search. So job seekers saying salary has always been important, but now salary is crucially important because they may have fallen behind uh, inflation. And that's the number one concern job seekers have right now is keeping up with inflation. 
at the same time, we always tell people, look, look beyond the salary, look at the total rewards, look at the salary, the benefits, the perks, and the growth you're going to get in the company, as well the mentorship. So there's a lot of things at play here, but salary is very important. One of the challenges companies have is they fear that, well, if I post the salary, maybe I haven't given everybody a raise in that department, and then I have to go back and give other people a raise who haven't asked, or my competitors will see what I pay. But from what we've seen, when you are in hiring mode, you attract better candidates, you attract candidates that are serious, you attract the right candidates. When you are posting salary ranges for a position or when you're more open to talk about salary range in the process, there is nothing a job seeker hates more than going for the first interview and you're talking about sort of what they've done in your business and what you're looking for and it comes up. So what's this job pay? And like you said, well, we haven't quite worked it out yet. You know what it pays. You just don't want to say. And that's when job seekers check themselves out of the process. So it's very, very frustrating, and you won't be able to attract the very best talent unless you are forthright and share what exactly is the salary for the position. And think back years ago, it used to be when you got hired, oh, keep your salary secret, don't talk about pay. That's actually a very poor practice now. We know that across the board, almost two-thirds of people talk about their salary open in the job market. And when it comes to the newest employees, Gen Z, it's around almost 90% share what they make amongst their friends and people at work. So salary no longer is this taboo secret that we all have to keep. The, uh, the market is actually embracing sharing and letting people know and, and sort of that's how we become honest with each other. When we talk about being honest with each other, one of the conversations, uh, Michael, is about the idea of, you know, pay inequities, particularly uh, between men and women. And, you know, the push in some of this legislation is to also post public gender pay reports. I think that was part of the B.C. law that was introduced this week. Are we hearing more about that? Well, I, I think that's sort of where this all started a number of years ago was with the pay discrepancy, uh, knowing that historically uh, a female employee did make less than a male. And when it goes along sort of some of the different lines of, of sort of cohorts, it, it was always a, a challenge. So now this is one of the ways that um, some of the rules that have come out to help get rid of those pay inequalities. And it's a, it's a bit of a process. Many companies are working their way through it. I don't think we're perfectly there yet, but we've made a lot of headway in the last number of years. But now it's taken on a life of its own where it's become almost common amongst sort of friend groups or cohorts to share what you're making. And that's a great way to eliminate any of this sort of um, pay when it comes to, I'm going to pay that person less, or maybe I can get away with making them a lowball offer. It's shocking how many people have said, about 47% said that they have left money on the table because they didn't properly negotiate when they were, make, when they were uh, getting hired. And you think that's almost half the people who have left cash on the table or have left benefits on the table. Well, it's uh, certainly food for thought for a lot of us here, Michael. We thank you for the time. Thanks for having me on. Michael French of Robert Half joining us live on 680 CJOB. And what do you think? Would you prefer to have that information disclosed? Yes. But not, uh, it used to be the rule, Brett. Like, you don't talk about your money amongst your coworkers. Well, now you know why. <laughs> you heard, you heard why. The discrepancies that, potentially. And, yeah. And, and yeah. That's why employers want to keep it secret. We don't want it secret. It's time for our small town salute. And anytime we lament the onset of the colder weather and or 
any significant snow accumulation. We are quickly reminded on our text line that many Manitobans love winter and many of its associated outdoor activities. And I would say at the top of that list for many is life on the hard water, as they say, the frozen lakes and rivers of our amazing province. When we think of ice fishing, Loren, we love to reach out to our next guest. Because it's often to smaller communities, different lakes that you might go to do your ice fishing. So master angler Eric Labapa joins us now for our small town salute. Good morning, Eric. Morning, guys. Master angler. Thank you. That's uh, fantastic. <laughs> are you not? You are. I, I guess so. I guess I'll add that to my email signature now. You should demand <laughs> that, Eric. You should be like, only call me master. So that's how we'll do the rest of this interview. Master Eric, just how popular is ice fishing in this part of the world? It's incredibly popular nowadays. In the last five to ten years, it's uh, really t- taken off. Uh, people are taking up the sport. It's fantastic. We need to embrace our winters. You know, it, it, the, the, our winters are so long. We're always griping about it here in Manitoba, but... Uh, we embrace it. You get things to do, and ice fishing is one of them, and the whole family can enjoy it too. So it's a fantastic sport. And it really is a unique experience. Like, you just clearly can't do this in most parts of the world. So, do people come here from, come from away, so to speak, to try their hand at ice fishing? Oh, yeah. All, all kinds of people that visit here, they, they, they associate, you know, they associate canada with like you know ice fishing and and, and and igloos and whatnot and stuff so they, they come out and expect me to see that but it's really sophisticated now the sports so uh it, it's it's beyond just using a hockey stick and some line it's uh all kinds of fancy fish houses now like these are rvs on the ice nowadays uh, people are using side-by-side quads that are covered and electric augers and electronics uh it, it, it really is really fancy nowadays but it can be just as simple too it doesn't have to be uh that complicated either so anyone can try it it's very it's very accessible very accessible sport i'd like to say first of all that gripe is an underutilized word in this part of the world so i'm putting it on my list of words to use (laughs) several times today so thank you for that eric you know connor hellebuck uh, just signed a seven-year contract extension with the jets and in his conversations with media outlets not only in winnipeg but really across north america he talks about how much he loves the outdoors being outdoors, we know he's an ice fisher, loves to, loves to angle in the summertime as well. When you have somebody like that talking about what's going on here, what's the opportunity in terms of convincing someone to, you know, get on a plane and say, come from California and like, just come and do this for three or four days. It's something that, that you, you, you'll never forget. Yeah, you just got to give it a shot. I mean, you get all kinds of Especially, you know, guy Connor Hellbuck, uh, he, he might even show up at the Winnipeg Ice Fishing Show. No, actually, they're in Arizona. They're on the road, actually, <laughs> right now. But <laughs> but he, he usually comes up to the show. I, people want to try. Like, I, I took some people. I had family from California visit uh, last winter. And uh, their kids had never tried ice fishing. And uh, they, they, were, they, were, they, they wanted to go to the mall and stuff like that at first. I go, no, no, just give it a chance. We'll only do it for a couple hours. We ended up being there for like seven, eight hours on the ice, and uh, they had a great time. I made a video about it, and uh, to this day, they still talk about it. They can't wait to come back. So a lot of it is just giving it a shot. A lot of people just want to, you know, I just want to try it and take a picture of me standing on ice. And next thing you know, uh, they start planning vacations around it after. It, it, it sounds weird, but the people do come out here. We have this right in our backyard. Like, uh, we don't have palm trees back here like you guys were talking about, but we've got ice. We've got ice, and it, it, it really is wild. By the way, palm trees... 
uh, my, my thing was don't stand under them mm-hmm. back in the day because I learned on Sesame Street that coconuts fall on your head and stuff like that. So I, I was always afraid of palm trees back in the day. But uh, people are afraid of ice. You don't have to be afraid of ice. We drive on ice. It's like Walmart parking lots nowadays where people drive on there and, and, and people are a little freaked out about it. But it, it, it's safe. You got to be safe about it still. But it really is a safe sport as well. There's also people who will come for the experience, Eric, and then there's those who also come because they like the kind of fish we might have in Manitoba. And that gets us to one of our listeners who was bragging this morning about his love of gold eye and how he thinks there isn't gold eye anywhere else in the world. Is that just a Manitoba fish? No, not at all. We have it across uh, across Canada, central Canada anyway and stuff. But uh, They don't get stopped at the border like when they try to swim across? <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't have passports and stuff, but uh, <laughs> no, no, because but we got a lot of them here. They are like, I mean, we got their, you know, Winnipeg gold eyes and we're known for smoking them and stuff like that. So it is a local delicacy. Uh, no, we have a lot. They have it all over the place, but we have a lot here. Like we have a lot of walleye here. We've got a lot of catfish here and we got all kinds of uh, northern pike. So people coming from all over the place because they think that, oh, it's the only place to go get them. But it, we have world class fishing. We have We have bigger versions of everything else that's out there. So... Uh, oh yeah, my wife's looking at me. I was I was almost gonna make a joke there. I won't say it, but uh, yeah, we got awesome big fish in Manitoba. People come from all over the world to come here and try, especially on ice. I like that your your wife is next to you to rein you in, reel you in. Perhaps is the way I should have gone with it, Eric. <laughs> yeah, oh she does, but she keeps me straight. <laughs> Why are the fish bigger here? I'm not like. Uh, we don't have really a long growing season per se. I mean, like if you think about wildlife and whatnot, you know, winters are long and stuff. It's, it's strange that they do get bigger. I don't know. It's in the air. It's in the water, maybe, I guess, or whatever. But uh, we have a lot, like our walleye, world-class. I mean, it really is world-class walleye fishing. And if you want to catch a fish of a lifetime, one of the places on the top of people's list is, is Manitoba and Winnipeg. Winnipeg is the epicenter uh, it's not hyperbole either. There's another word for you guys, hyperbole. We'll use that a couple of times. Hyperbole, is, it's not, uh, world, it's the epicenter, I was going to say, of, world, of ice fishing. Winnipeg is. Like everywhere looks to Winnipeg. They look to Manitoba for all the current trends and uh, what to use and uh, what's going on in the world of ice fishing. Winnipeg is seen as the place uh, to find out on what's going on. And that's why uh, we have our Winnipeg Ice Fishing Show coming up this weekend on November 4 and 5. It's a big show, and everyone is looking this way from Toronto to Vancouver to to Minnesota. They're all looking this way to see what's going on and what's going to happen this weekend. Tell us about the show, where, where it's at, and uh, how you can get tickets, Eric, before we let you run. we got to let you do that at least. Yeah, it's, it's $10 at the door. Uh, you, you don't have to buy tickets in advance. It's all $10. The kids 12 and under are free. Uh, all kinds of things uh, to see and do. There's all kinds of programming. We've got experts uh, like Jeff Gustafson, Jay Siemens, Clayton Schick. These are famous uh, YouTubers and famous professional anglers. Uh, Nicole Stone. There's all kinds of all things for the ladies. Actually, we've got, Lauren, you've got to come out on Sunday. We've got a, a panel discussion on the Eskimo main stage uh, saying uh, uh, female anglers and uh, reshaping a traditionally male-dominated industry kind of thing. So it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be cool stuff. I'll be hosting that panel, and we've got panel discussions. We've got stuff about Lake Winnipeg Walla, and we've got the Young Angler Zone, uh, Red River North Tours and Young Angler Zone, where the kids have competitions and, and the magicians down there, all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. You're going to come down. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, Red River X Place over at uh, 3977 Portage Avenue. Come take the family. Come take the friends. Uh, come check it out. Eric Labopa, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for the time, sir.
Thanks, guys. Have a great day out there. Kickerfish.ca for more information on the Winnipeg Ice Fishing Show happening November 4th through the 5th, as he said, at Red River Exhibition Place, where you can learn and then head out wherever you want in southern Manitoba to enjoy some ice fishing this winter. And I bet you people are getting excited already because I was... There's already ice forming on those rivers. It's sure. crazy. I was out for a walk the other day, and in you know the retention ponds, I, I, I out loud go, "Is that ice?" Yeah. I mean, you can't go on it. Let's be smart. Let's be safe. Uh, no. We're a long ways away from going on that ice, but it's coming. Yeah. Boo! I say boo. I mean, I'm excited for Eric and all the fishers. I, I, I will admit, I got excited when I saw the ice because I thought, ah, "You love walking on the river trail. River walk yes. is going to come. Exactly. Maybe it'll happen sooner." See, there you go. But right now we want to have a discussion, Loren, about parkade safety. Yeah, we've talked an awful lot about how we might feel about safety just this week, about safety in in the downtown and, and how that might have you feeling about coming or going from certain businesses and, and safety with small businesses was our conversation yesterday. The Manitoba Nurses Union has filed a grievance with Shared Health regarding what they're calling unsafe conditions of the parkades parking lots, and surrounding outdoor campuses at the Health Sciences Centre. So they have a grievance arbitration date set for next month, and they're asking nurses. They're saying they've already heard from several people about safety concerns, but they want to make sure they're giving people a chance to voice their opinions, and so they're asking nurses to contact them if they have stories of, you know, their car being vandalized, maybe someone threatening them, people who are intoxicated or are publicly intoxicated, those who are maybe living... outside those parkades or any other incidents. And, and they're they're sounding the alarm and for their members at the very least that they're concerned about the coming and going from work. And so if there's any people who do work at that hospital, or quite frankly, I drive by St. Boniface Hospital every single morning and, and there, see all sorts of things going on out there. And it's not just our hospitals, but if we have any people who are working in those situations who have concerns about their coming and goings from work, please send us a text, 204-780-6868. The Nurses Union president is going to join Jim at some point between 1 and 3 this afternoon. But it's not just that. We talked about parkade safety at the Forks. There's been, every time I come into work, there's been days I've made some of you, either of you, come walk me down depending on how I'm feeling or come meet me if you don't mind. I don't really want to make this, what is it, a 50-meter trek? On my own, and it, there are a lot of spots where you just feel very vulnerable. We talk a lot about downtown safety and the concerns about downtown safety, not dim- dismissing them in any way, shape, or form. They are a concern. We've been downtown now, our studios here, what, four years? And obviously, the pandemic uh, created a hiccup, interrupted our transition from Polar Park over here. But I can tell you also, five, six, years ago coming to work at the hours that we do. I also felt uncomfortable many mornings at Polo Park because I would see people wandering around. I would be uncomfortable about getting out of my car, leaving my car, concerned about vandalism or otherwise. I mean, this is this is just something I think, Brett, we, we worry about almost regardless of where we live, work, play. I don't want to sound cliche, but this is this is not new, and it's not limited to the downtown. It's not limited to parkades either. Yeah, indeed. Uh, when we were at Polo Park, a number of our colleagues actually experienced break-ins uh, while we were there. And uh, here I know that there have been a number of times where security has had to be brought in because there were 
some weird people hanging out in the parkade. I think there was one day somebody was in, can't remember whose spot, but you sort of waited in the parkade, Greg, until security showed up yep. uh, so that this person could eventually park safely in their spot. Uh, and you've seen guys sort of ripping around in the parkade early in the morning, three, four in the morning, and some ne'er-do-wells, as it were. Yeah, I mean, look, you're right, Lorena. It's it's not a long walk from the car to the door in that parkade or any parkade, really. But I don't know. There's just something about that particular environment where you feel a little on edge. Mm -hmm. I think, especially when it's a parkade that were any, like, you could just walk into it. When I think of my parkade in my apartment building, you require a key card access mm-hmm. or you have to have the button and like they've rigged the door now where it will open only for one car at a time. So if there's a car in you front of me, rush in, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Like I, I have to, if I push the button again, it will stop it from going all the way down, but it will start its descent mm. because they're trying to make sure that one car is in and that's it to, to prevent other people from maybe sneaking in. So I do feel safer in that parkade, but I still, at 3.30, 4, 4.30 in the morning when I go to my car, my head is on a swivel. You still have to get to the physical parkade, you know, depending on how you're doing it. So I'm trying to think as we walk, work through this, you know, you're out loud brainstorming. What is the fix in some of these situations, right? Like we have a, I, you can call for a night walk, I think. I don't yes. know if that's 24 hours. I think it might be. And I should know that because I, I use you guys as my night guard that's security fine. guards and that's fine. Very imposing finger, yeah. figures we are. <laughs> Please come escort me. You're like my, uh, what is the thing in Hollywood where the stars have someone who holds their umbrella? <laughs> I should get an umbrella for you when, when you guide me inside. But what what's the fix? Is it having security guards in the parkades? That's not really going to help because the parkades can be five, six floors. Is it having those controlled entrances like you talk about, Brad? Is it having people who can do the night walk with you to and from your car? And then in, as I say all this, we just yesterday had a CFIB talking about independent businesses, the added costs of security. How do you how do you help your employees feel safe? Because it's not just in the workplace. It's the coming and going from that workplace. And I can tell you the time that I'm most uncomfortable when I show up here is when I see that there's glass on the ground, whether it's out on the street, close to the entrance to the parkade, or if I come in and someone has smashed a window in, you know, to try and 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 gain entry into areas that are otherwise secure. So just that presence, just that seeing a boarded up window or a broken window sometimes can be uneasy. And I also wonder if this safety question has people rethinking like, you know, the whole attraction of working from home for a lot of people. Is this one of the factors as well? You know, you don't have to deal with that. It is for me just for that five seconds of the day where you feel, well, it has to be even a little bit for you, Brett, when you get out what is it, a 10-meter run to make it to the door? I know you're not running. I'm exaggerating, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. I, you're not I, casually stepping out of that people cab. people yelling at you in the middle oh, yeah. of the night when you get out of your cab. Well, yeah, and there was a time when I would park on the street uh, before using the parkade, and I had to get back in my car and, like, drive, like run away from these guys who may have yelled something threatened at me or may have just been asking for directions. I don't know. Doesn't but matter I was scared. in that moment. No. I was scared. 
It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb coming up in our next segment. We are going to give away April wine tickets. They're coming to Winnipeg in April at the Burt. Presale is on now. The code word is CJOB. Tickets on sale tomorrow, or you can beat the box office with us by telling us about the things in Manitoba that you like to brag about, whether it's a person or a place or food or whatever. 204-780-6868. But we do want to continue the discussion on parkade safety, Loren, because it turns out this is something that's top of mind for a lot of people. It started, and it's been a conversation we've had for a long time, uh, whether you're downtown. The Forks had uh, conversations about that, and now people are talking about the Health Sciences Centre because the Manitoba Nurses Union, as you just heard in the news with Sarah, they've filed a grievance. They want to sit down with health officials and talk about safety concerns in the parking lots, the parkades, the campus at HSC. It's a huge campus. If you go in there, there are a lot of spaces where you would definitely feel vulnerable, like you would at a lot of big facilities, because it's not just the time of day, but it's huge. There's a lot of opportunities where you might be alone. One of our listeners just texted to say that they have someone in their family that I'm not going to disclose anymore that, that work at HSC, and they've come out after night shifts. So it's not just about safety. It's not just about vandalism. It's not just about, you know, public intoxication. This is gross. They've come out and the handles of their door are smeared with human feces. And that's, I just can't even, that's a whole other level of violation and disgust. You know, if it's two in the morning, how are you cleaning that up? Getting in your car, just the, the way that would make you feel. And so we're talking this morning about safety, the good, the bad, the ugly. John Gregg texted with some good. Yeah, John says, hi, folks. The underground parkade at 360 Main has had security patrolling the three levels in golf carts with flashing lights for over 10 years. I feel very safe at that location. It is simply the employer's responsibility to manage that environment for their staff, either through their lease agreements or their own funds. Not doing so makes them an undesirable employer. And so, yeah, safety is right at the top of the list for considerations for a lot of people when it comes to where do they want to work. I've had conversations with my boys when they said, oh, it might be fun to work there. Okay, let's let's think about this a little bit. Working in the grocery store for a time there wasn't exactly the funnest place to be. Sometimes... Uh, restaurants and being at the uh, you know, front counter isn't necessarily the place you want to be. There are all sorts of considerations, Brett, that people make about where they want to work, where they want to live, where they want to play. And I like John's text message because this is a, this is proactive. Ten years now that that parkade has been doing that. And so much of that for me comes down to cleanliness, all the different things that need to be done in order for you to feel safe no matter where you are. Like there are a couple of parkades in the, in our downtown where I will not park because they're disgustingly dirty. And I figure if you're not maintaining the most basic, the most basic need and the most basic controllable in this environment. What are you doing in terms of safety? Do you have operational cameras? Do you even have security? So, uh, John, I think you nailed that for a whole bunch of things, in fact. Well, and you mentioned uh, park places where you wouldn't want to park. I mean, I, I'm there every Friday. Right next to it, there's that parkade on King Street, right next to the King's Head Pub, that mm-hmm. old, I guess it's an old garage that I believe is a like a 
it's protected under the like it's a heritage site. Yeah. Heritage, thank you. And I don't know why it's disgusting. It's it, it, well, a you walk in there and you're in danger of being pooped on by a pigeon, <laughs> which is first and, and foremost. The pigeons are kind of they're kind of fun. They they entertain me. But there is anytime uh, I walk by, there's often people in there doing drugs, or there are people in there going to the washroom. There was a fire inside the wall in that place last week that two passersby identified to the management at the at the pub. And we went out and we were throwing snow on it and dousing it with water and trying to figure out, we're like, I think this is in the wall. So we had to get the fire department to come figure it out. I don't know what they did, but they, they dealt with it quickly. But, uh, you know, there, and there were jokes flying around like, trust me, I, I didn't want to call this in. I'd love nothing more than to see this thing burn down. Right. But... If if that thing goes down, then there are other buildings around it that would be in danger. So that, but that parkade, you couldn't pay me to park in there. It's a scary place. It's so dark in there, and I think I'm trying to I'm trying to look it up. It's called is it Ma's Garage? Yeah, Garage. Name? Yep. And I'm trying to look up its protected status. At face value, it's kind of neat when yeah. you look at it, and there's probably a great story to it. But when we protect things and they have a great story to them. We aren't doing ourselves any service when we're not selling the story. Yeah, exactly. The story could be really cool, and you could have a placade, and you could make it nice, and you would want to go in there and be like, oh, wow, this used to be a, it probably was a horse's barn saddlery place. Was. Or, yeah. And then yeah. people got hung there. I don't know. There's probably something really cool that went Somebody down got there. Hung there. I don't know. I threw that in for the times. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, maybe it was where the saloon was, and then they tie your horse up, and then you didn't behave, and... There'll be a hanging for you. There could be a cool story for all we know. Well, we don't know the story because it's gross in there and we haven't taken care of it. That's right. just a whole other conversation. Yeah, you can't just... Uh, boy, Cindy Tugwell's going to be mad at me uh, after listen, this. Listen, I love the, why we protect things. I, I do get too, the reasons but behind But you cannot protect every single structure in the city. And if you do, you have to make sure that those structures are functional somehow, at the very least secured, maintained. You know, it just can't be like uh, my basement totes full of stuff. Ah, someday I'll use this. Yep. No, it's in the public eye. There are potentially very serious uh, safety ramifications to not making sure that if that space is open to the public, that it's functional, it's lit properly, it has all the things that it needs to have in order to be safe, to be functional, and not be an eyesore. I, th- I think that's the responsibility when we go down that road. Save all the buildings we want. I think they're spectacular, but there have to be conditions attached. Yeah, like when you look at it, it's clear that it's got some history. You like you just look on the facade and you think, oh man, I would have liked to have seen this when it was new or in its glory. But now it's a disgusting place that's just a parkade. And I think, well, if you're not going to fix it up, then do something else with this and get rid of this because it's unsafe. It's an eyesore and it's quite frankly just not safe to be in there as far as I'm concerned. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. We're asking you this morning, what would be in your Manitoba brag book? And this is inspired by the fact that our own Brady Oliveira from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is the Western representative for most outstanding player and is probably a shoe in to be outstanding Canadian. So what's in your book? And a couple of quick ones here. Mika says socials. Jim Riley says tenderloin meats. Kielbasa, yum, and then some pierogies, too. Another listener with more food, Bothwell cheese, especially the fresh curds. Todd Dubeck says, that brag book's got to have Salisbury House, most specifically the Salisbury House red velvet cake. 
Oh, I don't know if I've ever had that. Yummy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Delicious. Um, Bev says, it's haven't not heard flapper pie, but it's good. Oh, oh here we, don't even start that. <laughs> Bev says, haven't heard any mention of a beautiful hidden gem, Lake of the Prairies between mm. Roblin and Russell. Such a peaceful retreat every summer. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I've only been there in the winter when I've skied because it's near the resort in Russell or the ski hill in Russell, rather. But my in-laws love fishing there. Yeah. I need to get there. It's like a beautiful long lake that sort of streams through the valley. and Apparently it's human made. Yes, because it is at the end. Is it? Is that the one that's at the end of the Shelmuth Dam? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's 67 kilometers long as well. So that's pretty, pretty Lake impressive. Lake Minidosa is man-made too, but it doesn't make it any less beautiful. It's man-made and it's not 0.67 kilometers long. <laughs> it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But um, Brett and... Brett and Selkirk. I'm not saying anything bad about Minidosa. Come on now. Sorry, Brett. Go ahead. <laughs> Brett and Selkirk, after living in Toronto, says Brett, our low population brings us a much better lifestyle. I hope you don't get carried away with our numbers here in Manitoba. I don't want to have to move to Saskatchewan. Oh boy, I used to have this conversation with my grandpa. Don't you want to grow? Don't you want Winnipeg to advance? Nope. I like it just the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Uh, Greg Megan Flynn is our runner-up this morning. I wanted to mention Gimli. Manitoba has an actual authentic coastal town in the absolute center of the prairie we have a lake so enormous you can't see the other side with a well-established fishing industry and smack in the middle of the prairies Mm. in the center of the country furthest from the eastern and western coasts as we can possibly get we have a coastal town that's how I always brag about Manitoba. Thank you, Megan. That's a pretty cool perspective Megan thank you for that but Loren our winner is Jakob I spent 18 years teaching English in Warsaw, Poland. It's a city that surprisingly doesn't get much snow, and the average temperature is minus 5 all winter. That being said, I regularly send pictures of snowfall in Winnipeg. Call me crazy, but it's a brag for me, and many of my friends there are really jealous. And so they should be. They should be. Because I remember last November was such a gray and gloomy month, but we didn't really have any snow. So it was just cold and and gray and yuck. So the fact that it's already snowed kind of sucks to see it early, but I will admit that I'm already feeling a little better than I was last year at this time. And I'm even already kind of getting into the Christmas Mm. spirit a little bit earlier. I'm already thinking about shopping and getting excited for the gifts that I might be able to go out and find. And the snow helps. It's almost insulting when there isn't, a certain level of snow. Like if it's going to be winter and yeah. it's going to be cold, but you only say you only got five centimeters in that winter, you get that dusty, but you just have to get stuck with the grayish, greenish, yeah. gloppy blah, blah of <laughs> gloppy blah, blah. for like six months. It's like that. Blah, when you it's, look at it in spring and fall, if that yeah. lasted the whole winter, you'd be annoyed. Fall and spring vomit. It's, it's just <laughs> sort of disgusting. The snow is <laughs> like a white duvet that you throw over your messy bed, you know? <laughs> November 12th, November 12th, let's celebrate uh, certain things on the football field and putting up my Christmas tree. You're, you're invited to my house, McGarry. All right, sounds good. In the meantime, Jakob, you win the tickets for April Wine. In a moment, we will introduce our next guest who has written a fascinating book as we approach Remembrance Day. But before that, a police officer weighing in, Loren, on parkade safety. Yeah, we're following up on the story of the Manitoba Nurses Union 
looking for a conversation with their employers on the safety issues around HSC when it comes to getting to the parkades, the parking lots, etc. And they filed a grievance. A police officer in our audience texted to say, I wish the nurses at HSC the best of luck with their grievance. As a Winnipeg police officer, I can tell you several officers have been assaulted outside the downtown headquarters after their shift is over and they're walking to their vehicles. If officers are concerned for their safety, I can only imagine how nurses feel. The sad part of this is I don't see conditions improving anytime soon. Thank you for sharing that feedback. We appreciate it. And you can continue to weigh in at 204-780-6868. And you can weigh in on our question of the day at cjob.com. Should employers be required to list a salary range in job postings, yes or no? And we've added a poll question to our X feed, formerly Twitter. Should neck guards be mandatory in all levels of hockey, yes or no? Our next guest has enjoyed a decades-long career on the screen and stage in this country, has been nominated for and won multiple Gemini Awards, which celebrate the best in Canadian television. But today, as we head towards Remembrance Day, he's here to talk about his new book. Yeah, the book is called By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families, which is described as an audacious work of nonfiction that explores the stories that shape us and the reach that the past can have across generations. So the author is a member of the Order of Canada, also has a recipient of the Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. His name is R.H. Thompson. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. I think it's so important to not just, you know, have these conversations one day a year, but many days of the year. And and you've dedicated much of your, your life, really, to honoring veterans and reflecting upon war you grew up in north of Toronto, I believe, right? So you, you've you mentioned in the past you've had romantic notions of war. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, you grow up with ideas of war, you know, your fathers and your grandfathers, and it was always the great victorious expedition. And my father was in the North Atlantic for three and a half years, and you hear the great tales, and then you get older, and then you start to hear the other sides of the story, and suddenly the war story takes on more dimensions than you ever knew when you were young. And I think, because I'm a storyteller, right? I work in theater, I work in TV, and we tell stories. So I think the stories you tell about war have got to be pretty comprehensive as opposed to dressing up one way or the other. I just also want to point out that really one of the roots of the book started in Winnipeg because I was doing a show at the Winnipeg Theater Center uh, uh, called The Lost Boys, which is about my family. And we were I was performing it in Winnipeg for about three weeks, and I think a show, people came, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened is every night after I played that show in Winnipeg, people came back to my dressing room, knocked on the door, so whatever, interesting show or whatever they thought, or maybe they didn't like it. And then they started telling me the stories of their families and their war stories in their families. I never asked. So I sat in Winnipeg backstage at the Winnipeg, uh, at the, uh, the Manitoba Theatre Centre, and Winnipegers started telling me the stories. I mean, that's partly what the book is about. I mean, the three of you there, you've all got stories that your family told about whatever war from whatever tradition you came from. So it's kind of like delving into that and honoring that. Well, I can tell you, you know, the the history of the First World War is is in many places in this community, Mr. Thompson. And, you know, uh, Valor Road, Pine Street, the the renaming of Valor Road, and that's in my old neighborhood. And on Remembrance Day, we'd walk 
to to what well, we would we would solemnly walk uh, in a procession to Valor Road and Portage Avenue and and hang a wreath. And now there's a park on Sar- uh, Sergeant Avenue in Valor Road where where you know commemorations take place. And and so it it, it actually it's pretty easy to find. Uh, you know, markers and, and historical reminders of the First World War in this city. But then it gets a little complicated because your soldier, your Tommy, is a, is a Portage in Maine, right? The original kind That's of right. kerfuff, kerfuffle about him is he's he's in an American uniform. And people say, wait a minute, wait, we, we just put this up. And it was a misunderstanding that the sculptor took an American image for this so-called Tommy. Because I remember I did a play uh, set in the World War One, also at the Manitoba Theatre Centre, where I played uh, a British corporal or something. And I remember going past that statue every day, and I was always inspired by it. And then you find out the little interesting niggles of history that are around it. I'm very glad that it's there, right? It's fantastic it's there. But the story's never quite as straightforward as some people tell it. And I think in the ways it twists and turns is that's where you see the depth in storytelling about war. Well, and when it comes to storytelling about war, as as you went through the process of writing this book, By the Ghost Light, War's Memory and Families, did it change your or alter your perspective on life at all? You know, sometimes people who lose wars tell the stories about the war in more dimension than the people who win wars. And don't ask me why, because, you know, I run another project called The World Remembers, which has set out to name everyone killed in World War One, And actually, Winnipeg City Hall, you showed it. You showed it for two years back in the centenary years. And it was fantastic. But it set out to name. I said, no, no, and the poppies are great. And November the 11th is great. But nobody names them. Nobody says, here are the names of the guys who didn't come back. So I said, oh, let's name them. But I also said, no, because... Winnipeg is everybody. There's the Ukrainian community and the Icelandic community and the American. I said, you have to name them all from all the countries. And so the world remembers set out to say, let's put the American names up there, the New Zealand names, South African names, the German names, the Slovenian names, the Italian names, the British, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we're everybody now. And from that war, which was before the Nazis, before the camps, you can do that. So I set out to do that. And in doing that, my attitudes about the stories of war changed because I talked to the Italians, the Americans, the South Africans. Uh, I talked to everyone and they have very, the Canadian perspective on war is very good, but it kind of has its limits. And you got to go talk to the Ukrainians about war and you get very different perspectives. And I think we have to be cognizant of that. We have to respect all the perspectives now. And I think they should be named. I don't think you should remember a war without the name of the people who went down. There's something powerful about that. And I'm curious, your thoughts, the impact that can have not just on family members, but just people passing by, you know, I'm just going to mention my hometown, Minnedosa. I have, they do a great thing every year where they keep it up year round. They hang from the light posts, the picture and the name of veterans that served in World War One, World War Two. I happen to have two great uncles that are in those posters, but it means something to see that each time. And that's a personal connection. But why do you think that's just important overall for the population to see the names and, and the faces maybe even? Because history is personal. It's the 
It's the, your personal feelings about your family and what happened. That's the power of history. Right? We all took history in high school, right? It's not in about the treaties. It's not about the battles. It's not about the kind of paragraph headlines. It's the details. And the people are the details. Therefore, and the people were lost. Therefore, we have to remember the people, not as a collective, them. Yeah, we've done that for 100 years. We remembered them. But nobody's remembered Lauren and Robert and Francois and Balak. No one remembers the names. And I think enough of that. In this war, you can actually name them. So we are doing it now. It's running at the Canadian War Museum. The world remembers. We have a website. You can go and look up your name. I don't care if you're in the British Army, South Africa, if your family was in, in, in was British or South African or Chinese. There are Chinese names in there because they were killed in that war, as well as the 68,000 Canadians. So that display is running at the Canadian War Museum, but it's also online. So you, go, you can go and search and look up and see if your great-grandfather was killed in that war. I mean, naming them isn't that the least we can do. They lost their lives. You have um, significant family history yourself tied to the First World War. So that, that just does that make it more real? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I lost seven great-uncles in that war. And, you know, five were killed right away. Four were brothers uh, from an Ontario family. And the five brothers went over. One got very sick quickly and he was sent home. Two were killed there. And then two died afterwards from the effects on their lungs. So really four out of five. And I think of my great-grandmother. I think of the mother. Because we don't think of the mothers, too. Think of the women. Think of the nurses. Think of all the wives that... These men, the men who survived, they came back not only sometimes with physical wounds, they came back with mental wounds. And those mental wounds affected how the kids were brought up and the grandkids and the marriage. And so the women took a big brunt of that. Uh, so it's, a bear, it's, it's worth thinking about that. But history's in the details. It's in, in your families and your listeners. That's where the history is. All of your listeners have... Go talk to your grandmother and your great-grandmother and your uncles and your great-uncles. Go talk to them and see what they say about that. I don't care which part of the world you come from, because there will all be stories and conflict in those families. And what do we do with them on November the 11th? R.H. Thompson will be in Winnipeg Thursday, November 23rd at 7 o'clock for a launch event at McNally Robinson. Mr. Thompson, thank you very much for joining us to tell us more about this book. We appreciate the time. Thanks for giving me the time. R.H. Thompson, the author of By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families.